Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the book of Acts, the seventh chapter, where this morning we will be looking together at verses 37 through 43. Acts chapter 7, 37 through 43. And you can find that passage on either page 1076 in your pew Bibles or starting there on the bottom of page 38 in your Acts journals. We are continuing this morning to make our way through this speech given here in chapter 7 by Stephen before the Sanhedrin. These are the very words that will cut right through these men and expose their true colors in light of their hearing the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than repentance and faith, they are moved only deeper and deeper into rage against God and His Word. They will kill this man, Stephen, for speaking the truth. So far, Stephen has made a very solid case that these men indeed do not understand Abraham. They do not understand the promise made to him. Nor do they understand the significance of that promise for the people of God. He has also pointed them to the truth about the patriarchs. They were sinners standing in desperate need of God's amazing grace. Yet God moved and directed the course of history itself to serve his own holy and perfect purposes. They had sold their brother Joseph into slavery because they had hearts that were full of envy. And God used what they meant for evil to save them and their people. Last week we began this section beginning to, to deal with the man Moses, a man whose name had found its way into this false accusation that was being leveled against Stephen. He had been charged, among other things, of speaking ill of Moses and the holy law of God. And these men of the Sanhedrin were, of course, self-righteously offended at the very idea of it. Stephen tells them in so many words that even with the man Moses, these men knew nothing at all. He's very near the end of his discourse here. Last week, we looked specifically at three things that came out of this early description of the life of Moses. You will remember Stephen broke down 120 years of Moses' life into three periods of 40 years apiece. The first being Moses' birth until the time of his finishing his education and preparation in Egypt. The second, moving from the time of his exile into Midian until his return to Egypt. And the third then, running from the time of Israel's deliverance from Egypt until the time of his death, just outside the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. And in looking together at those three periods of Moses' life, as described here by Stephen, we looked at three primary works of Almighty God that were going on during the lifetime of Moses. First, we saw that God was clearly preparing his people for deliverance. Luke tells us that when the time of the promise drew near. These events of his life are, of course, encased 
by the promise of God. Israel had been slaves in Egypt for around some 400 years at this point. There had been prophecy about this time in Egypt. Stephen mentioned it back in verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, chapter 7 of Acts. And really, he's pointing them back to Genesis 15. When this specific period of time that they had been living in had been prophesied to them in detail. They should have been looking for their deliverance. However, they were not. They were suffering under the hand of God's providence. And in their suffering, they could not see past their misery because of their circumstances. The people had forgotten what God had said to Abraham. They had forgotten the promise. They had forgotten the, word, the words of their God, and they only cried out to him because of their misery. And yet God was using that misery to prepare them for his great deliverance. He had not forgotten them. And he had graciously heard their cries. And beloved, we talked about the comfort that we see here. God knows us as we are. Not as we pretend to be, but as we truly are. He knows our frame. He knows our predisposition towards all things sinful. And yet he loves us like this. He does not turn a deaf ear to our cries. He does not leave us to suffer alone. He prepares us for his deliverance. Secondly, we saw that God was also preparing his deliverer. He's not searching the world here for the next great warrior king to raise up to defend and deliver his people. No, God chose Moses before the foundations of the world to be born here at this place. At this time. And we talked about that. It was God's plan for Moses to be spared here in Egypt. He did not die under the wicked edict of the Pharaoh to kill all of the Hebrew babies in the land. He was taken into the Pharaoh's house and raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. He was educated in the wisdom and the ways of the Egyptians. And beloved, None of it, not a single day of it, not a single second of it was by chance. Moses was not lucky in life. He belonged to God for this very purpose. He was being prepared to deliver the people of God into the land promised, by their, promised to their fathers. And God equipped Moses with some form of knowledge of it. Stephen brings it up. We do not know the extent of that knowledge, but Moses knew what he was. And he was watching. He was patiently waiting. Of course, he was also a sinner. And sinners quite often try in vain to get in the way of God's promise. But who could ever stand against this God? It's a reoccurring theme in this book. A God who is moving and shaping the world as he sees fit for his own perfect and eternal purpose. Moses was waiting for the call. A call which did not come until he had fled into the Midian wilderness and had spent another 40 years of life as a shepherd 
tending the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro. It was only then that Almighty God called to Moses through the burning bush and sent him as his deliverer back into the land of Egypt. God was preparing Moses to deliver his people. And finally, Stephen pointed to the glorious hope that God indeed delivered his people. God is faithful. As I mentioned to you last week, it is impossible for us not to see the gospel here in all of it. We have hope like the Israelites because everything that they could have ever needed to be delivered from the oppressive hand of Egypt was supplied to them by Almighty God in His grace. He even delivered them to them His holy and perfect law through the man Moses in the wilderness. Not so that they could simply just check the boxes on what righteous living should look like. That's what we often do, isn't it? But it was so that they could further understand their own wickedness, their own sinfulness apart from God's grace, and see their own desperate need for a righteousness foreign to themselves. They needed perfect righteousness of yet another greater deliverer. The one whom Moses existed to but point them towards. King Jesus. The one who would deliver not only their bodies but their souls to glory. And Beloved, I hope that we saw that the way, the path to the only righteousness that will ever suffice for us is very, very clear in the word of God. We must be united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. We must be covered in his perfect righteousness to ever be able to stand in the judgment as the declared beloved sons and daughters of the Most High God, those who have been made righteous in Christ. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited deliverer of the people of God, and our salvation is complete in him alone. Stephen has made it very clear. And now his answer to the charges, or I should say the false charges, leveled against him take a bit of a turn. It's been progressing. It's been building up to this point. He has shown these men the error of their ways, and he knows that they hate him for it. And now he begins to show them something that though true... They most certainly do not want to hear from him or from anyone else. But Stephen speaks the truth to them with his life on the line because he can do no other. Because he belongs to King Jesus. So let's look at what he says in our passage this morning. If you've not already done so, please turn with me to Acts chapter 7 and follow along as I read from the Holy Word of God, verses 37 43. Hear now the word of our Lord. Stephen says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. 
And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away to Babylon. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have each and every Lord's Day to come to your word and to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray that your spirit would attend the preaching of that word, that you would give our full undivided attention to your word this morning so that hearing these things through the power of your Holy Spirit, we may be transformed by this truth for the glory of your holy name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you probably caught it already, but Stephen's entire answer really here pivots on verse 37. In a sense, it is the application of all that he has said leading up to this point. Have you noticed it? Jesus is the full culmination of the promise. Everything exists because of and through and for him. And they do not have to simply take Stephen's word for it. Stephen points them to the words of Moses so that he can make the point that they will, they will not, in fact, they have not taken his word for it either. They're not listening to Stephen and they never listened to Moses. Think about that, beloved. Here he is, Stephen, on trial for his life, for supposedly disrespecting Moses and the holy law of God. And he has already told them that they know nothing about Abraham, they know nothing about the patriarchs, that they knew nothing about Joseph, and now he's telling them that they know nothing of Moses and his law. Do you see that here? Can you even imagine the rage burning in an unrepentant heart upon hearing inflammatory words like that? They've said, you disrespected Moses and the law, and Stephen says, you know nothing of Moses or the law. Because if you did, you would know that none of this is my invention. Because Moses said it too. And our fathers would not hear him either. Listen to what he says. He says, this Moses, the Moses we're talking about, this Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you another prophet like me from your brethren. Him you will listen to. Him you shall hear. And he's talking about Deuteronomy 18. We just read it this morning. Did you hear it? 
He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. When he speaks, you will hear him. He not only has the words of God, he is the word of God. And when he speaks, you will hear. He will speak my words, God said. And I will deal with the ones who do not hear him. See, everything is driving towards him. It is impossible to miss the rebuke in these words of Stephen. Stephen is saying, you do not hear me. You ignored and you eventually killed the Lord Jesus Christ, the very one that Moses pointed you towards. And he wants to be clear. He's saying, you do not do it because you're simple. This is not a situation where simple-minded people are living in ignorant bliss because of their ignorance. No, you know and you should know. The problem is not that there has not been enough for you to glean some knowledge floating around the synagogues, the synagogues of, of Jerusalem, the synagogues of Israel. No, you don't obey because you ignore God in his word. And now the one that really hits home with them. You never heard and you have never understood Moses either and you still don't. Because you are a wicked and rebellious people. And we come from a long line of wicked and rebellious people. Our fathers refused to hear him too. Look at verses 38 and 39. This is he, Moses, who was in the wilderness with the angel, who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. This Moses that you seek to defend the honor of this day, in this trial, in this court, this Moses that you and our fathers have dishonored, in that you have missed the point of everything he said. And you did it all because you would rather bow before dumb, silent idols who never rise up, and call you sinners. Stephen is saying, I have not dishonored Moses because I have heard Moses. And I have heeded his words as the very words of God from the mouth of his prophet. I have not dishonored the law of God, the law that God gave to us through Moses because that law drove me into the arms of Jesus. Jesus whom you have killed. Because the truth is you hate the word of God and you hate his prophets. You understand, this is what this is leading to and of course, they're going to kill him for it. They are indignant. They are outraged. They have murder boiling up in their hearts because they are a wicked people who do not know God or his word. They're living out lives that are truly an adventure in missing the point. And beloved, it is impossible not to pause here and to let the word of God do some spiritual triage upon our own hearts this morning. And we're going to. But before we do that, 
I think it would be helpful for us to see what is going on here in this trial. On the surface, Stephen is, of course, on trial here for blasphemy. His life is at stake. And his jurors and his judges are only growing more and more certain of his death with every word that he speaks. He's not making the case here for his life to be spared. Right? He's told Jason this morning, he's no Ben Matlock. Remember, some of you are old enough to remember Matlock, right? This, this, this seemingly impossible situation would arise. He'd spin a golden yarn, and the next thing you know, he'd say reasonable doubt, and nobody knew what the truth was anymore. That's not what's going on here, right? Stephen's guilt is becoming more and more sure as he speaks. They're going to kill him. He's not making a good light, a good, a good case for his life to be spared. But we see something else here as well. These men of the Sanhedrin, in the eyes of God, are also being weighed here by their actions and their words by the judge of heaven and earth and all that in them is. And his wrath is coming for them. The world weighs by the words and the actions of men and is stirred to wrath. God weighs by his word. And the heart or the, the hearts, the hearts that hear or that do not hear through the power of his Holy Spirit. The Spirit would bring repentance and faith to all of those whom he calls. But the stony heart of man, apart from God's grace, is never stirred to love, but to hate and to wrath. These men have proven to be from the latter group. They have both hated the messengers and the message alike, because the truth is, in their hearts, they hate the one who sent them. They prefer idols to a holy, perfect, and righteous God. They would much rather chase them. Do you get that here? Stephen says that they, in their hearts, turn back to Egypt. Think about that. Egypt. What was there in Egypt that would have them so longing to go back? Slavery? Oppression? The murder of their children? The whips? What did they have in Egypt? A king to rule them? They had rules, some of them even doable in Egypt. Make this many bricks and I'll feed you. They had a variety of food in Egypt. No boring manna in Egypt. They had Egypt's gods. The ones who would never tell them to wait for another. The ones who would not judge them in the moment. You know, the ones without mouths or eyes or ears or minds to ever speak anything like judgment against their sin. Was none of their business. Yes, we want those gods. Gods who represented an idea and yet really posed no real threat to us. You understand? They were idolaters. That's what Stephen is saying. The Word of God is full of the proof of that fact. 
And as soon as Moses was gone for even a minute, what did they do? They sought out Aaron and they said, hey man, look, Moses is missing. We all know it. Who even knows where that guy's off to? We cannot just sit here waiting forever. So here is our jewelry. Here is our rings and our earrings and our nose rings and our necklaces. Make us a golden calf so that we can all get on with the eating and the drinking and the being merry part of our religious life. We do not need any more patience building activities. We have suffered. And now we want to be comforted on our own terms. Moses, at that very minute, was receiving from the gracious hand of God the law, which would drive them to Jesus Christ and bring them from death to life. But no, no, we don't want to wait. We want temporal comfort. Because we are idolaters, not the servants of the living God. This is what Stephen is saying here, not just to the Israelites. He's saying it to the Sanhedrin. He says that they, the fathers and they themselves, turned back to Egypt in their hearts. They wanted idols, not deliverance. And it's subsequent freedom because to them, Deliverance felt harder than slavery. This final point here had to have made them burn in their rage against him. He points them to Amos chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. First, in 49, he tells them that God gave them over to their idols. Right? You recognize that kind of language? Does it remind you of another passage that we've spoken of together before from Romans chapter 1? It reminds me of Romans chapter 1. Sin is the judgment for sin. Paul says in Romans 1, beginning with verse 28, Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to their vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, their men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgments of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. God gave them over to their sin. 
They wanted idols, not redemption. And by pointing them to Amos 5 here, Stephen is making the point that they are now and they have always been idolaters. Do you see that here? God says to his people in Amos chapter 5, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Simple question. And I'm sure that their answer would have been, of course. Lord, you know that we did those things. We followed the law. We did it in the wilderness, in the tabernacle. We did it in the temple. Yes, we offered you those things in the wilderness for 40 years. Of course we did. You know that we did. And what does God say to them? He says, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch, the star of Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away to Babylon. They did not worship God because they did not worship him in their hearts. Do you understand? The Christian life is not about going through the motions. If you're feeling comfortable this morning because you've been a good person, because you come to church every week, because you come from a good family, because you have a clean and pretty life, listen to the word of God. It's not enough. They did not worship God in their hearts. They were content to go through the motions and call that good enough. And God says, you want the idols of the nations? You want slavery? You long for these things? I'm going to bring you some more of it. Do not fear. Babylon is coming. The Assyrians are coming. The Romans are coming. You long for idols? You will have them. Sin for sin. God gave them over to their idolatry. And next week we'll see that before Stephen gets even more direct and ushers in his own death... He's going to talk to them about the temple and their misunderstanding of all of that as well. But now, beloved, we need to consider that spiritual triage that we find ourselves reminded of so often here in these Acts of the Apostles. And surely by now you see that there are so many applications here. I'm sure they're going through your mind this morning, or at least I hope they are, because this isn't unfamiliar. Too many for us to touch upon them all. I'll touch upon a few. Spend some time with this text over the next week because we need to wrestle with this. So we'll start by asking the first question. What leads to idolatry? How do we get from being people of the living God to being foolish chasers of worthless idols? Well, we see here some of the recipe for that disaster, don't we? First and foremost, they rejected the word of God. God spoke to them through the mouths of his prophets and they rejected them. Beloved, there is a very real and present danger here. We do not get to pick and choose what is comfortable and uncomfortable in the word of God. We must always heed his word because his word And his words are life. His words are truth. We must long for his word. 
We must trust his word. He's already made the point that that is precisely what Abraham did that they've missed. Through faith, the gift of God, Abraham took God at his word. He trusted him. Even when it did not seem all that relatable. Or that it would ever come true. Faith takes God at his word. That can be difficult, right? It's not always easy to trust when our circumstances are so painful. So I'm asking you this morning, do you trust God with your life? Do you believe what his word says about your life in light of who he is, who he's revealed himself to be? Do you believe that God is truly sovereign? That is, that he is over all things. R.C. Sproul says of the sovereignty that if there is sovereignty of God, if there's one maverick molecule in this universe that does not answer to God, then God is not God. He's something less. Do you believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, merciful and gracious and just will you trust him or is the alternative easier you know take matters into your own hands it's exactly what the israelites did what did they do they went to aaron and said look moses is gone make us a likeness of god so we can get on with our religious life we're fine with an idol Is it too difficult for you this morning to see the parallels here with so much of modern Christianity today? Perhaps even our own. It really is the rub, right? According to Stephen, Israel had failed to see the whole picture. They had stopped short of Jesus Christ the final full culmination of all things. They stopped short of him and they bowed before the idea of Moses. But even that idea was of their own creation because they did not have even that part right. Because Moses existed to point them to Jesus. Figuratively and literally. Do you see that Stephen is making that point? He's been making it for a while. They had chosen the shadow instead of the substance standing behind it. They had saw the shadow on the wall and they worshiped the shadow and not the person whose shadow was being cast back through the light of his word. They had ignored the substance. What does that mean for us? How do we avoid that? And what is it if we do that? If we chase the shadow and forget about the substance? Beloved, it's simply adding to the message of the gospel. That's doing that. It's making something tangible, you know, so we can all get on with our religious life. Give me something to lay hold of. Hear me this morning. It is idolatry. 
and it is wicked. And it is a rejection of God's word. We avoid it by trusting that Jesus Christ truly is the author and finisher of our faith. Because God clearly tells us as much in his word. Everything in the Christian life is centered on Jesus Christ and his gospel, and it's not new. It's always been the case. It was the case in Genesis 3 when God promised that though the serpent would bite the heel of the man, the seed of the woman would ultimately come and crush the head of the serpent. It's the gospel. It was there in the promise to Abraham that through his seed, his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. It was there in the story of Joseph and his brothers. They sought to kill him, and yet God, despite their sinful hearts, would use Joseph to save them all from extinction under a severe famine. He would save a remnant of his people. It pointed to a greater redemption in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. It was there at the birth of Moses when God would not be thwarted by the edict of a wicked paper king. It was there in the Passover, as only those covered by the blood of the spotless lamb were spared the judgment of God. It was there on Sinai, as God gave Moses the very means to convict the hearts of his people of transgression so that they might truly seek the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see, beloved? It is and it always has been. It always will be there in his word. Do you really want to avoid the heinous sin of idolatry? Then you must know his word. Because it's only as you know the word that you can trust that word and live in that word and treasure that word as the source of life. Do you know the word of God? Not just on Sunday mornings, daily. Do you treasure that word? You must know it well enough to never get the idea that you need to add to it. Stop making Christianity about everything other than Jesus. Stop making it to be about peripheral moral things. It's not Jesus and. It's not Jesus and your behavior. It's not Jesus and your baptism. It's not Jesus and your choice of education. It's not Jesus and your devotion habits or the complete lack thereof. Trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as being your own because God said it is so in his word. Trust. In the truth of the gospel. Because trust in anything else, it's looking back towards Egypt, looking back towards your bondage, looking back at those idols that in their silence were never keeping you from making yourself look better than you are. Do you see that this morning? Jesus Christ is everything. God's word has been driving his people towards him from the very beginning in the garden to the very end when we will all bow before the glorious, victorious, triumphant lamb upon his throne. 
Will you worship him? Or are you content to chase idols and convince me that it's Christianity? The word of God is clear on what both bring. One brings life. The other seals death. The question is, will you worship the king?